The following is a Frank R. Wilson presentation. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. We talk to those from the industry and learn about them and their favorite scores. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So let's take a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we're going to play today. Recognize that music? It's one of our guests' favorite scores. Now, he is without question the most prolific producer of film music recordings. Now, over 1,500 albums, to be exact, uh, and uh, all of them are from the best composers of today and the past. Now, he's worked with, uh, get a load of this list, and composers like Goldsmith, Birds, Bernstein, Mancini, Horner, Barry, Zimmer, and that's just to name a few. And then here recently, out of the blue, he decided to kind of change course a little bit and start producing live concerts of film music all over the world. We're very excited to learn about this man and explore his choices of music. Uh, I'm not exaggerating. This man is a, a giant in the film music world. And uh, as, a, as a result, is really a hero of mine because he's done so much work in uh, releasing, you know, uh, lost scores or previously unavailable scores. And, of course, you know, even current films as well. So I couldn't be more excited about our guest today. I hope all of my listeners will join me in welcoming Robert Townsend to the program. Hi, Robert. Hello, Frank. So happy to be here. I, you know, of course, love recording film music. I love presenting film music in concert. And I love talking about film music. So we have a lot to uh, discuss here. I think. That's right. Well, that's a perfect match then for us. Um, and I must tell the listeners, too, uh, this I sometimes throw around this phrase. I always love it. The hardest working man in show business. Well, this, this guy, you're up in, up in that kind of a class. It's taken us, what, a couple of months, I think, to finally squeeze in a time when you could talk with us. So I'm really grateful for you making time. Um, um, my I pleasure. Usually, yeah. I, I usually start our programs with just asking our guests to tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up and family and uh, kind of the early years, that kind of stuff. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, of course, originally from Canada, I'm a Canadian, grew up just outside of Toronto. And at a time where I was discovering film music through, well, really discovering a symphony orchestra through the film scores of Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams and what they were writing in the late 1970s. So for mm -hmm. John, it was Star Wars and Superman. For Jerry, it was Star Trek and Alien. And it opened my eyes and ears to the whole world of what was being done in film music. I would very quickly after that start to discover other composers, 
you know, Alex North, George Delarue, Elmer Bernstein, mm-hmm. and and then more scores each of of Jerry's and John's at a very quick pace. And so it was very exciting and eye-opening and a thrilling time to discover film music. And then very quickly kind of transition to my voracious appetite for all of this music and what I was hearing, but also with it not being quenched with what was available and realizing that some of my favorite scores that were being written at the time, um, by this time into the early uh, 1980s, a score of Jerry Goldsmith's for The Final Conflict, a a Mm -hmm. 20th Century Fox film, the third of the Omen films, Also a movie he did for Universal, a small film called Raggedy Man. Neither of those received soundtrack releases. John Williams scored a film called Heartbeeps for Universal. Had an album planned on MCA, but then canceled. This was the score he wrote in between Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. Okay. Elmer Bernstein had gone five years without a, a score release. So looking back, it was certainly not a good time for film music releases. And then that became the groundwork that really inspired me to ultimately create my own label, realizing that maybe I should just stop waiting for someone else to release these scores that I (laughs) wanted and just do it myself. And as simple as that, that's what I did. I established Masters of Film Music. Looking back, I can't believe... It makes sense, the the events that inspired it, but that I actually pulled it off and... (laughs) And just went for it. Yeah, the, you make it sound really simple, but it, uh, I suspect there were a lot of bumps along the way. Well, it, I mean, there was a lot to the process of you know establishing the label itself, establishing a relationship with 20th Century Fox, establishing a relationship with Jerry Goldsmith, setting up a distribution network and infrastructure with Varez Saraband Records, which existed at the time, you know, in a different form, of course, than it than it grew to become mm-hmm. in late in later years. But this is all happening in 1986, 85, 86. And then pulling all of that together, I lined things up for my first soundtrack release, which ultimately was Jerry Goldsmith's The Final Conflict, one of the scores that inspired me to do this in the first place, hmm. and, and put together that release, which came out in uh, in April of of 1986 when I was 19 years old. And then, so I had my first album with Jerry Goldsmith and uh, established the label and, uh, away we went, you know, from that point on, there was just no looking back. That was That's, a, amazing. That's yeah, amazing. I, that was going to be one of my questions was how old were you when this all got started? And I, that's phenomenal. A 19 year old, a teenager starts his own label and starts establishing relationships with these giants in the film music industry. That's just phenomenal. And starting at the top, literally with Jerry Goldsmith. And, and, and the beautiful thing too, is Jerry was so supportive and, and it was the beginning of, of a, a lifelong friendship and, and relationship between us where he and I would ultimately do over 80 albums together plus concerts of, of his music and, and recordings of Alex North's music and so many things over, you know, over the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. I worked with him from, from that point on through to his, you know, what ended up being his, his last score, which was Looney Tunes Back in Action. And then the, not a day goes by where I don't think of him today, and I'm always looking for opportunities to program his music and the concerts I produce. Mm-hmm. 
He's he's uh, a legend forever, a master of film music, and uh, an inspiration to so many, and certainly cer- certainly to me. Yeah, you know, and and I want to talk about him a little bit later in the program, but I, I I'm just I'm thinking of myself, or and I'm sure anybody else could that's listening, to to think about what a an incredible uh, I don't even words just escape me to be a, a, someone who is over the top of a fan of this genre and of, of certain composers in particular to going from not just being a fan, but to actually working closely with them is, it, it, you know, what an, what an amazing opportunity you created for yourself. So that's terrific. It was, it was extraordinary at the time. And looking back, you know, it's, it's maybe even harder to believe now that it played out the way it did than it did at the time when it was just that that's just, what was happening and and you you kind of accept your own life at the time it's it's playing out excellent that's oh that's fascinating story let's we've got a lot of music we want to play today and so i want to get to one of the cues uh that you had mentioned and uh start with that there's one you talked about i think is actually your most recent recording uh called cinema morricone uh tell us a little bit about the that Q and what it uh, what it is that made you want to include it in your list of ten favorites? Absolutely. Well, Cinema Morricone is is my newest album, so it's not a track, but actually a new two CD set that I've just released on Sony Classical, which begins my new or next era of film music recording. Because I love recording film music, I love making recordings, and certainly have so many more ideas and and plan on doing so much more, and so. After a 30-year history with Perez Saraband, we now kind of segue to the next era, which is Sony Classical. And Cinema Morricone begins that, which is a project I have I had wanted to record with the L.A. flutist, Sarah Anden. For a couple years, really, I had that idea. And the concept was creating a project that would take Morricone's moving, legendary melodies mm-hmm. and, and scores... And adapt them into a, a an intimate setting for flute and piano and kind of give them a fresh treatment, but hmm. something that really kind of goes to the, in, in some ways, the heart of what they are and capture the details of the, of the orchestration at a virtuoso level and then put it in the hands of, of two virtuoso musicians. And I knew for the flutist, I wanted it to be, and it had to be Sarah Anden, the, the Los Angeles flutist of L.A. recording sessions on so many countless uh, movies and TV shows, and also as an international soloist performing at the great film music festivals and with the great orchestras of the world. So she she was half of the, the puzzle or the equ- equation, but then thinking about who the pianist should be, and my mind kind of captured all the great pianists in the world that I know, and 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 ultimately the decision became clear to me on the heels of doing an album a solo album with an italian pianist named simone padroni uh who uh, lives uh, near uh, milan italy he's a van Cliburn competition gold medalist Mm. and a couple years ago i did an album with simone of all john williams material and in his performance style and in his personality, his touch on the keyboard, all of these 
elements really made an impact on me thinking, I think this is the guy. And hmm. and one night I wrote to Simone and and proposed the idea of uh, asking if he would like to be involved in the Morricone project. Of course, we have a an extreme time difference between Los Angeles and Italy. But I wrote late at night, so he was already it was already early morning there, and right. he wrote back within five minutes saying, "Oh my goodness, what a what a great idea! It would be an honor. I would love to be part of this. Absolutely, oh, yes, outstanding." It sounds like a fascinating project, and it uh, obviously a a real um, passion project for you. So uh, let's let's sit back and, and have a listen to this. The the cue we're going to be uh, playing is uh, it's called "Playing Love." Is that from a particular uh, film that Morricone yeah, uh, did? Yeah, a, a a beautiful movie, which I recommend to absolutely everyone it is so moving it's about music it's directed by Giuseppe Tornatore and it's called The Legend of 1900 this is a beautiful scene where a a pianist who lives on a ship unusual concept but he's he lives on the ship does not leave throughout his life but is making his very first recording and sitting in a sitting room looking through the portholes of the ship and this beautiful young girl walks past the the portholes on the other side and he starts to improvise looking at her and he's capturing his own feelings of yearning and love for her as he's improvising at the piano and that's what this cue that Morricone wrote captures and is so powerful in the movie and I love the movie so much, I knew I, it had to be included on this album. And so this is Sarah Andon and Simone Padroni uh, performing Playing Love from The Legend of 1900. Excellent. Let's sit back and have a listen.
Now, here you are in your late teens with this uh, passion of yours. Did you ever, this is a question I ask a lot of our guests, did you ever feel like a an outsider with your peers that, you know, everybody else is listening to, uh, I don't know, Elton John or Hart or ZZ Top or whatever it is they listen to and you're, you're into film music? Was that, was that ever kind of something difficult to explain to people? Well... Maybe to an extent. I mean, certainly, you know, I did have friends that were also interested in film and, and, and film music. But of course, the the masses are more drawn to pop music and things like right. that. But but that it in no way bothered me. I was always very comfortable kind of, you know, marching to my own drum, as they say. And <laughs> um, so I charged forward with both my you know, own passions for music and then and then going uh, further um, with it. Yeah, it because uh, a lot of our guests, myself included, especially in the days before the Internet, sometimes you, you would feel like an outsider. Is there anybody like me that actually likes this stuff? I mean, uh, you didn't have any way of joining groups or, any, or, you know, or seeing people on the Internet saying that they shared the same passion as you did. So but it's it, you didn't let it bother you. And that's great. You yeah, went ahead and it, followed it. Exactly true that, yes, certainly this was this was before the Internet. There was no kind of support world like that. And I was comfortable kind of taking the lead because really the the goal, uh, the mantra of, of my own was to do what I could to brighten the spotlight on the great composers and their music uh, and, and bring it hopefully to the into the world of and the ears of. Uh, people that I felt, you know, would share that passion, sometimes not embracing that only because through ignorance, not being aware of how powerful this music is, how beautiful this music is, how exciting all the things that film music is and all the different styles that it can be. But just to introduce people to it through through recordings and uh, and concerts as well. That's well, that's my goal in life. Yeah, and it strikes me that I think your timing was exceptional because I, I've always kind of heard that right right around this time frame of the uh, maybe the late seventies or early eighties that film music was all of a sudden starting to experience a, a, a more of an explosion in popularity. And a lot of people credit John Williams and Star Wars for that. Uh, that all of a sudden people started taking notice in it more than they had uh, historically in the past. And it sounds to me like you were kind of right at that right time, starting to get into it and then pursuing your your passion right when it was starting to explode in interest. Yeah, very true. It was a time period that was fodder to developing a passion for film music because film music was so great, was was um, so, you know, in the hands of these spectacular composers at the time, so many of them doing the very best work of their career at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, film music, it's not like it had disappeared by any means, even just a couple years before Star Wars. John Williams had Jaws. Yeah. Uh, also around that, you know, the year before that, Jerry had Chinatown and the, the wind and the lion is is from that period and and the omen in 1976 from goldsmith so there had been all of this great work but then there's no question that star wars was a a watershed of introducing what was being done in film music to an even younger group of fans of mm-hmm. which i i was part of and and it was it was thanks to, as I say, Star Wars and Superman, Star Trek and Alien, all in this 
this tight little kind of packaged period of time and and that just absolutely blew my mind and and captured my interest and 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 set a a fire in me that became a lifelong passion the next one on your list was uh, and you've you've mentioned this man several times alex north a mm. uh, 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 terrific composer that i guess probably was mostly what 50s 60s and 70s is that a safe that was kind of his window. Yeah, uh, the, his most famous scores come from that period, beginning kind of in 1950 with A Streetcar Named Desire. There were so many scores throughout the 50s. But then in 1960, there was Spartacus, arguably the greatest film score of all time, certainly one of them. And such a dear man, a brilliant mind. I've been so lucky to work with almost, you know, not an overstatement to say virtually every great composer that was working during the entire duration of my career. Mm -hmm. But the time I spent was at, with Alex was so moving to me. He was so inspiring. The palpable sense of genius that I felt when I was with him, you know, I would go over for lunch and we would hang out in his studio downstairs talking about music, later talking about recordings and, and some of the ideas I had for new recordings of his scores while his wife, Anna, was getting lunch ready upstairs <laughs> and uh, you know just the the idea of how, you know as young as i was at the time but sitting with alex north the you know the, the man who wrote the very first jazz score with a streetcar named desire yeah such groundbreaking right. groundbreaking music landmark scores viva zapata the agony and the ecstasy cleopatra the misfits unchained melody his uh, you know one of his classic songs he wrote so many beautiful songs what a what a life and career so <laughs> so groundbreaking and really the favorite the favorite composer too so in, in, inspiring for other composers yeah. and, and in a documentary i produced about the spartacus score that involved John Williams and Christopher Young and David Newman and Brian Tyler and Mark Isham, Lalo Schifrin, Alexander Splott, all of these composers talking about how Alex influenced and came into their world and inspired them. John Williams talking about how Alex was a myth-like figure to himself and, and his whole generation and then mm -hmm. cited Jerry Goldsmith in particular. It was very moving to see all of these composers discussing how uh, impactful Alex's music was on their own music and life. And then to celebrate it in this way where the box set that I produced in 2010, which, which marked both the 50th anniversary of the film and also what would have been Alex North's 100th birthday hmm. and, and was my own 1000th album production. Uh, the, <laughs> the goal was to really make this the soundtrack of all time a six CD box set with a DVD feature documentary about the score that I produced. And then also a, a, a 168 page book documenting the, the history plus hmm. plus two CDs of variations on the Spartacus love theme, where we wanted to tell that part of the Spartacus story as well. The classic recordings, you know, arrangements that had been done of this beautiful melody over the years with Bill Evans and Yusuf Latif and Carlos Santana and Ramsey Lewis. I wanted to license these classic recordings and include them in the box set. 
Hmm. But then I also had the epiphany of realizing that all of my best friends were the great composers and musicians of today. And we could add our own new chapter to the Spartacus love theme legacy. And so I started calling my friends and seeing if they would like to do new arrangements of this uh, melody. And this became a two CD set within the box set that was a masterclass in music arranging and the pliability of melody and seeing all of these different musicians take the material and explore it in such different, different ways. I really encourage them to be daring with the material because that's, but stay true to it because that was true to the spirit of Alex North daring but not to go so far afield where it stops being the Spartacus love theme. Oh, excellent. Well, let's uh, let's have a listen to this. We're actually going to play two cues uh, that Robert's sharing with us. One is simply the the overture, which back in the days when they used to have an overture before the movie started, so that I always appreciate and love that. Uh, and then we're obviously going to play the, uh, the love theme as well that he's referenced several times. And this is the performance by Dave Grusin that the, he uh, pointed out, so... Sit back and relax and enjoy this. Uh, all music from the film Spartacus, written by Alex North.
the way you you the way you talk about this music leads me to a question that maybe is ridiculous. I don't know, but uh, are you a musician? I mean, do you have you studied, you know, the technical aspects of music, or I'm, do you I'm play not, an instrument? You know, no, I, I don't play an instrument. I'm not a musician. I'm uh, a producer, but music is absolutely my life. Of course, the degree to which I have studied almost obsessively over the over the years uh, you know, <laughs> with the the output that has resulted that's what kind of gives me my my grounding in in this world well it seems like you've picked up a lot though because i hear you using phrases that that uh that a musician would and that uh you've obviously you know you couldn't help it i'm sure pick up some terms and some understanding of what those terms mean by, by all the people that you've worked with. Well, I've had the best teachers in history, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, uh, the next one on your list that we were going to play is, a as a cue from another classic film, uh, called to kill a mockingbird written by Elmer Bernstein. And what's interesting here is that I, if I understand this right, this is a re-recording that you produced, uh, with Bernstein, uh, using the Royal Scottish National Orchestra is that is that a safe uh, yeah. way to describe it? Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, during the 1990s, I developed a, a very uh, close relationship with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra and started visiting Glasgow two or three times a year with Jerry Goldsmith, Elmer Bernstein, Joel McNeely, John Debney, Cliff Eidelman. Mm-hmm. I also took Stu Phillips. We did a Battlestar Galactica recording there oh, wow. and recorded so many classics of Jerry's and Elmer's Alex North, Bernard Herman, Franz Waxman, John <laughs> Barry and To Kill a Mockingbird was one of my all time favorite scores. Uh, one of the masterpieces I think in all of film and the opportunity, it really kind of came up last minute because I was, I was, actually set to go to Glasgow with, with Jerry Goldsmith to record Patton and the Sand Pebbles. And this happened at the time he, he was invited to score the film L.A. Confidential. Oh, okay. And so he called me just a couple weeks before we left. We're, we're scheduled to leave and and said, uh, oh, my goodness, I, I have a real situation. Is there any way you could get someone else to take my sessions and fill the time. I mean, he knew it was already too late to to cancel the sessions, and so he he said, "Could you yeah. could you get someone to to fill in for me, and then let me score this movie, which I really want to score. I really like what I've seen, and really want to do this. And then and then we'll reschedule my time to go back after I'm I'm done this movie. And so, oh my goodness, what a you know dramatic." <laughs> situation that created where I'm supposed to be leaving for Glasgow in two weeks and Jerry Goldsmith asking if he can step aside for the moment in order to take on this new film. So yeah. started making some calls. And anyway, long story short, the result was at the time it turned out Elmer was actually in the United Kingdom, staying at his home in Warwick, England, and was close enough to Glasgow to be able to drive to the sessions and so we rescheduled and, and uh, made, changed plans from recording uh, Jerry Goldsmith's scores to a trip with Elmer Bernstein uh, and Cliff Eidelman. And Elmer conducted To Kill a Mockingbird, new recording, 40 years after the original. Wow. And then, and then Cliff conducted an album of the Alien trilogy and a, a Shakespeare project I did called Romeo and Juliet, Shakespearean Classics from Stage and Screen. 
uh, it was great to have Elmer and, and Cliff there t- together being able to share stories. But then just to see Elmer on the podium in front of the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, one of the great symphony orchestras of the world, bringing To Kill a Mockingbird to life once again, where even, you know, when he entered the room, I remember on the first day, he walked through the doors of the concert hall to the podium and the horn section of the RSNO started playing the theme from the Magnificent Seven. (laughs) (laughs) It was really beautiful. And then to hear to hear this score come to life again all these years later was so moving. And um, I bet it was for him as well, probably. it, It was. It was. And yeah let's have a listen to this this is from the film uh to kill a mockingbird written by elmer bernstein the the cue is called boo who uh and this is a a re-recording of the original uh produced by our guest today uh robert townsend so let's uh let's have a listen to this one this is again from to kill a mockingbird
you know, I'm with all these recordings you've done, and of course you've done a lot of produced a lot of albums for, um, you know, recently released films. So it's kind of like on schedule movie comes out. So does the score. I, I'm not thinking about that so much, but all these recordings you've done of, of either scores that were recorded years ago or, or in many cases never been released before. You mentioned a few already. I, what I'm curious about is that do, do composers or does, the studio or whatever does anybody keep a copy a hard copy of the of the score I'm, I'm talking about the sheet music so that if you go back into the studio it's like you know we don't have to we don't have to reproduce this or anything like that we've already got it all set and and get it out to all the musicians can you talk to me a little bit about that process absolutely it's a very good question and the the answer to that question varies from one picture to another from one mm. score to another in the case of Mockingbird, we were in pretty good shape. But when on another trip I was recording Elmer's The Great Escape, completely different story. All of The Great Escape had been thrown out in the 1960s. Mm. Mm. And we had to have, from Elmer's own sketches, we had to have the orchestration recreated, in fact, by Jack Hayes, who had done the original orchestration 40 years earlier. Mm. And so we called him back and working with Patrick Russ, who did a lot of work with Elmer on his recent scores at that time, they created a new set of orchestrations. And then, and then we had the parts copied to be able to do the new recording that we did of that score. So many different stories. It's a, uh, a lot of, you know, Sherlock Holmes meets Indiana Jones, <laughs> um, wow. trying to, Trying, trying to kind of put together this history and come up with all of the, the elements that we need to do recordings like this. But a lot of music preparation work is required so often. Yeah, I mean, have you? I, I'm aware of at least a couple. Uh, my listeners will know I'm a, a huge fan of John Barry, and I know that uh, the name of the company escapes me now, but they've done some work in Prague with uh, releasing some of his uh, scores that have never been released before. And in many cases, there was no score available. Uh, and so literally a gentleman by the name of Nick rain, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, he told the story of when he, when they did the re-recording of the score for the Betsy, he basically had an old VHS tape and would sit there and put it on the TV and then listen to about 10 seconds and then write it all down and then listen to another 10 seconds. And, and throughout the entire movie, he, he recreated the score by ear, which just mm-hmm. still amazes me. Did did you have some situations like that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, actually, on John Barry's uh, music. Now, I did a, a number of recordings of John's in uh, in Scotland. We were in we were in good shape when we did Out of Africa. Although we were we did record cues that were not on the original Out of Africa album, but did a new hmm. recording of, of the complete score, which I was so relieved when I was uh, afterwards when I heard back from John who could be very critical of new recordings of his music mm-hmm. but when he when he heard the recording I did with Joel McNeely conducting in Scotland John uh, called me one afternoon to say how happy he was with it how beautiful the recording was and the performance was so that was uh, wow. that that meant a lot to me and then and then following that I did somewhere in time 
newly recorded with uh, John Debney conducting the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And, and then we also did Born Free with Frederick Talgorn conducting the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. But the most difficult of those was doing Body Heat, which I recorded with the London Symphony Orchestra. So not, not in Glasgow this time, but in London, in Studio One at Abbey, Abbey Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joel McNeely conducting. And that was a score that where even the the orchestrations and and uh, sketches were all gone. There was nothing in existence that that we could find for wow. body. So we created that, as you described, literally from scratch as a takedown. And I put a music team on that to go through and rebuild all of the cues through the uh, takedown. <laughs> That's just amazing to me. And, and and it was uh, so important that, of course, it be exact. I mean, this was music. This was going to be performed by the London Symphony Orchestra. So we're, you know, we're giving it yeah. to one of the great orchestras in the world. They're going to they're going to play it brilliantly. We need to make sure that the music preparation is is up to their level. And of course, it was. And, and what a magical day that was hearing uh, Body Heat come to life in Studio One at Abbey Road. Yeah, and I've heard it is a good recording. I've heard that one, I know for sure. Uh, but you've piqued my curiosity. I'm going to have to go back and look in, out of Africa and some unreleased music. I need to check that out. Okay. <laughs> um, glad you mentioned that. Yeah, um, it's really beautiful. Let's, um, we're going to go back to, uh, well, we haven't even played anything from him yet, but I, I wanted to play one of the cues you chose uh, from uh, Jerry Goldsmith is a from a, a CD a recording that you produced I think it's called Frontiers mm-hmm. yes and uh, which is a, a collection of well I'll let you tell the story what what, what about that tell us yeah, about that yeah. project and then what we're gonna play so this was one of my concept ideas where it wasn't about recording a complete score but I put together a collection of themes from some of Jerry's greatest science fiction scores. Now, of course, he'd written so many, we could have recorded multiple albums. So it was a a truncated list, to be sure. But I wanted to do an album that would include Star Trek and Alien, Twilight Zone, Mm -hmm. uh, Total Recall, um, these great science fiction scores. And so Frontiers was the, the idea that I... Uh, the title I came up with for this concept and and ran it by Jerry, and he was very much on board doing that. And and it's just one of the, for me, I think one of the greatest recordings I've I've ever done. It turned out so well. The sound of the orchestra, the performance, he was just in top form. And uh, and then this cue that that we'll play is the Enterprise which is my favorite cue from Star Trek, the motion picture, which is one Mm. of my all time favorite scores of Jerry's. And in so many ways, this is, this is really one of those cues and, and maybe, you know, maybe the principal cue that truly locked in my passion for film music. Yeah. Well, let's have a listen to this. This is from the film, uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. The cue is called the enterprise. It's written by the maestro, Jerry Goldsmith. Mm-hmm. 
I'm curious now, of course, you, you know, you're going to be a little bit biased in this answer, but I'll, I'll still ask it anyway. Do you, do you think there are, t- well, let me, let's see, how do I want to say this? I guess, are you trying to, when you do these re-recordings, are you trying to precisely 100% capture what was in the original recording or is there some kind of subtle no. differences? And I wonder if, um, no, it's not, it's not. I, okay. Yeah, it's, it's not about capturing the original recording. So it's it's about presenting the music itself in a way that represents the composer. And that that can vary in in performance style and in, in tempo and details of how you mix or balance the orchestra. So there are and, and in, in fact, actually, when recording Bernard Herrmann's Vertigo in um in Scotland, there were interesting aspects of realizing that even on the original recording session, there were there were issues that were not entirely under Herman's control, where he was not able to conduct himself with where the location even of the of the score was moving from city to city because there were different musician strikes and 
and musicians oh kind of go, going out in support of other musicians. And it was a it was a terribly timed score in that context. Well, let's uh, let's hear an example of what you're talking about. Uh, the film we're going to listen to is a cue from uh, Vertigo, and this is written by uh, Bernard Harriman. Um, let's see here. I'm trying to think of what the name of the cue is. Oh, it's Prelude and Rooftop. By, ah, yes, by indeed. Bernard Harriman from Vertigo. The opening, uh, the opening of the film. Terrific. Let's uh, let's let's have a listen to this and enjoy again from uh, the film Vertigo. And uh, written by Bernard Herman.
you uh, you mention it several times that it's and it's obvious that you had a real uh, close relationship with uh, with Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, and I know there's a there's a, a huge following of his that's out there in internet land that probably would soak up any kind of information. What uh, what was the man like? What was it like working with him and getting to know him and and ultimately become a close friend? Well, he he was just the coolest guy in the world. I had the best time of my life with him, talking music sharing stories i mean music was his life music was my life we had so much in common and uh, and then the opportunity of you know sharing you know so many experiences at his recording sessions where i was at almost from a certain point really from 1990 1989 i was with him in los angeles at at almost every session he had and then many overseas sessions of scores that were recorded in London, Powder, for example. And then um, and then with him while he was writing in that when he was working on The Mummy, it was at the time we were also traveling in the UK, kind of towards the end of his scoring process there. But he was still writing on the, uh, you know, writing cues. But we did a concert series with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, a little tour of Jerry conducting concerts in Glasgow and Aberdeen and Edinburgh with the RSNO. And then we finished up the week in London with the London Symphony at the Barbican. And Jerry would go back to his hotel room every night with a piano in his room and would be working on The Mummy. Oh, my gosh. The stories we could discuss on any one of these would uh, fill an afternoon. But... <laughs> But just the, you know, his, his own kind of, you know, passion for the the process, too, even though, the you know, The Mummy was one of the most difficult projects he had because they kept, you know, they were recutting the film and making changes. So he would, he, I remember, you know, in the car to the rehearsal the net one morning, he was telling me about finishing an eight minute cue the night before. And I said to him, oh, my goodness, Jerry, wow, I that's so exciting. I can't wait to hear that. And he kind of grumbled. You'll never hear it. They're going to cut the movie again. I'm going to have to rewrite the whole thing. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so he could be, you know, frustrated with, you know, that side of things. But his unbridled enthusiasm for the process, for being a composer, having the opportunity of scoring movies, recording his music with great musicians was so beautiful. And seeing him always looking forward to the next picture, the next opportunity. It was a world of film music for Jerry that he just had this voracious appetite for, uh, loving being a composer, and uh, and he was always Jerry Goldsmith. He you know, he came out of the gate almost as a fully formed composer, so his earliest works are masterworks. He was so sophisticated early, early on. And then seeing that, develop and grow where he was always pushing himself very hard on himself to always be changing, getting better, doing new things, being fresh, being creative. It's, it's the hallmarks of what a composer should be. And I love that about him, the whole, the work ethic, the, the loyalty he exhibited to other people he worked with, his music contractor, Sandy mm -hmm. DeCrescent, his recording engineer, Bruce Botnick, his orchestrators, 
Arthur Morton and Alexander Courage, Ken Hall, his music editor, uh, his agent, Richard Kraft. I mean, this team around Jerry was always there. It was like a family that came together throughout the year. And we would record his latest score and release an album and then sometimes presenting aspects of it in concerts. Uh, it was why a, do you think, a beautiful uh, film music adventure with him. Yeah. Why do you think that it's maybe it's just my perception or because I don't live in a part of the country where you would see more of this, but it always strikes me that there's a lot of more live film music concerts in Europe than you find here in the States is, is my perception correct or, well, or not? And then why, why is that? If it is indeed true, probably true, but historically there's been a, it's been a rare occurrence kind of throughout history, but this over the last now is maybe more in the 10, 15, 20 years. The uh, newfound enthusiasm for live film music, the passion of audiences and the the orchestras around the world finally kind of embracing it as a. You know, some orchestras with different attitudes. Some are enthusiastic about about in incorporating film music performances, live to picture performances, and different programs into their programs throughout the you know their seasons throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Some have been more resistant to that, but it's undeniable that it's happening, and we're ha- we're experiencing a a watershed. Yeah, I would a agree. Watershed, yeah, a watershed of of new live film music performances. And the enthusiasm for that is so inspiring. Now, you know, before anyone thinks that uh, the only scores that Robert chose are all all took place before the year 2000, uh, you actually have a much more recent film that you uh, chose for one of your favorites. Uh, this is from the film, uh, one of my daughter's favorite, and I know she loves the score here as well. Uh, How to Train Your Dragon by John Powell. Tell us a little bit about uh, your reasoning for including that on your list of favorites. Well, I've released so many of John's scores. He's one of one of our greatest composers today. And this was a special one. It was a a great film that really inspired him. Just the melodies he created, the orchestrations and then the suite he, he prepared that that is what we use when we do it live is so wonderful. But the score is so fresh so energetic and uh, and is absolutely one of my favorite scores of, of recent years uh john powell's how to train your dragon it's uh, it's just an extraordinary work from one of our greatest composers of today film music is alive and well so many great composers working you know john powell alexander splott brian tyler uh patrick uh patrick doyle yeah, um, they're out michael, there michael giacchino um, and, you know, and so many of the guys that have been working for, for, um, you know, many more years, the Alan Silvestri's and Howard Shores and James Newton Howard and, um, right. uh, you know, Hans and uh, I mean, just everybody doing, doing great work in all sorts of different styles. You know, I say so many times that film music isn't any kind of music. It's all kinds of music and it's alive and well. And certainly as we will hear in this piece from John Powell's how to Dra- how to train your dragon. Oh, perfect introduction. I see. Say, need say nothing else. Let's have a listen.
Because of uh, Robert's passion and enthusiasm for talking about film music, we had far more things to, uh, to talk about that could fit into just one episode. So I'm going to end this episode here, uh, but we'll be releasing part two probably in about a week. Uh, and I think you'll find that it's uh, just as interesting part two as part one, with all the great stories and, again, the passion that comes across when Robert talks about film music. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you continue to uh, download future episodes and please like our page on Facebook and leave comments too, either on Facebook or on whatever page you uh, listen to the podcast on. We always appreciate feedback to let us know how we're doing. And with that, there's just one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?